Bibles to the book of Esther. We're looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2. The title this message is A Bad Husband and a Good Dad. We look first of all a bad husband in King Azarias and a good dad in Mordecai. First of all, bad husband, King Azarias. I just want to remind you of uh, parents. I don't know if you all know this, if you haven't been here very long, but when I did the notes like this with Blake's, we started this years ago, actually when my children were just starting to be able to write and pretty young. So that was a long time ago. And uh, uh, we just wanted them to be able to pay attention during the service and to follow along. So that's the reason we started having the blanks in the, in the notes. It was actually kind of selfish. I did it for myself. But I still continue to do it for you, and I hope you follow along and encourage your, uh, even young children to follow along. And I know some of you do. I got some... Uh, I, uh, one of them gave me a gift last week of her note page that she had uh, threw some things on. So encourage you in that. A bad husband, King Azarias. Uh, first of all, he was demanding. Look at chapter 1. When his queen didn't do what she wanted him to do. Chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day when the heart of the king was married with wine, he commanded underline the word command. He commanded Mehuman, Bizda, and all these eunuchs who served in his presence, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. So he's commanding his wife to come and basically prance, prance before all of these other men who are drunk and he wants her beauty to be seen for his own glory. And then another place we see his demands being so demanding in the end of chapter 1 and verse 22. He sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in his own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak it in the language of the people. So he's telling all these men of the whole kingdom now, I want you to be master in your own house. And he's, he's promoting himself by even making that statement. He's saying, like, like, I'm master in my house. All you men be master in your house. And I hope you guys are smart enough who are here today to know that if you're standing in your house saying, I will be master in my house, you're not master in your house. <laughs> you know that? You are very weak, actually. And you are not worthy of even being a leader, a spiritual leader in your home, if you're demanding like that. And that's the kind of man we see King Azarias being, a very demanding husband. He's also quick-tempered, chapter 1, verse 12. When Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command brought by the eunuchs, therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see this contrast in the king. It either says he was really mad or he was really happy. But it usually says he was really mad. And his, his temper was out of control. He could not control himself. And a husband who can't control himself is not a good husband. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, Husbands, love your wives like 
you love yourself. Love your wives like you love yourself. Ephesians 5, 28. He that loves his wife loves himself. Men, you must control your temper, your anger, and your home. The third thing we see about King Azariah he was rejecting. We see this in chapter 1, verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the law of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. That Vashti shall come no more before King Azariah. We'll stop there. He demanded that she could not come in his presence anymore. What's he doing there? He's rejecting his wife. He's pushing her away. And he's declaring she can't even come into my presence anymore. Uh, sadly, today, the way men do this to their wives is not by being bold in their house and saying, you stay away. The way men do this in today's society is they stay away. They don't come home. They find excuses, whether it's work or a hobby or some other reason, not to come home. And so they stay away from their wives, being rejecting of the wife that God's given them. And then the, the next thing is that he is replacing. We see this in the end of chapter 1, verse 19. He says, after, don't let her come into my presence, he says, we'll give her royal position to another who is better than she is. We'll give her position to somebody else and she's going to be better than this. And this is the husband who finally says, I've had enough. I won't take any more. I'm done with this marriage. And I'm going to replace you. He doesn't say that initially, what, though, does he? He says, uh, I'm going to get a divorce. That's what he says. I'm going to end this marriage. But, but most of these men in the back of their mind, they're thinking of a replacement already. They already have in their mind somebody that's going to replace uh, what they have. And notice it says in the end of verse 19, one who is better than she is. I caution, caution men, that's not always the case. I've watched many men try to replace their wives, and it's not always a better replacement. And then look at chapter, still in the replacing, look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And this is the plan of how to replace her. Chapter 2, verse 3. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his king and kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the woman's quarters <coughs> under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Then the, let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this thing pleased the king, and he did so. So what's he doing here when he's replacing her? He's looking for someone younger and someone prettier. Not a good husband. Someone younger and prettier. And then the last thing about King Azarias, not a good husband, he takes no blame for what happens. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of King Azarias subsided, in other words, when he calmed down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done. This is how men are after they've left their wives. They remember what she had done. He, he's not taking any blame here. He remembers all the bad things she had done, but none of the bad things he had done. And then look what it says. And what, verse two, chapter 2, verse 1, and what had been decreed against her. He remembers what she had done and what had been decreed against her as if he didn't make the decree. Right? It, it, it doesn't say, and what I have decreed against her. It says, and what had been decreed against her. The decree was, don't come anymore in the king's presence. 
And there's going to be another queen replace you. This king took no blame for what had happened. He took no responsibility for what had happened. That's a bad husband. Number two, we're going to look at a good dad. In Mordecai's life, we do not know anything about his wife. Well, I could have just talked about a good, good husband, but we don't have that information here. Uh, I don't know anything about that from history, about his, his wife or his marriage, or if he even was married. But we see him displayed in chapter 2 as a father, in a father figure. And so we're going to look at him because he is displayed here in contrast to King Azariah as a good dad. First of all, he had a royal heritage. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. And now it gives his lineage. It says he is the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. For Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives. So underline the, the name Kish in your Bible. The son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So we, we're told here that Mordecai was a Benjamite. Now you have to understand who the Benjamites were. That was the lineage of King Saul, the first king of Israel. And King Saul's father was Kish, that's named here in chapter 2, verse 5. That's King Saul's father. So it's saying here about Mordecai, if, if you were a Jew and you read this lineage, you would go, wow, he's after the line of King Saul, the first king Israel ever had. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about King Saul, the first thing that comes to mind is bad king. That's, are you like that? The first thing that comes to my mind is bad king. I, uh, just a couple of weeks ago in my private study, I read through the life of Saul once again, and I, I was reminded that Saul wasn't always a bad king. Saul, in his beginnings, was a, a good king. The Bible tells us that he came from a wealthy family in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It also tells us that he, ladies, he was tall, dark, and handsome. It says this, There was not a man among the sons of Israel more handsome than he is, being taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. And we know this about Saul. In the, in the early days when he became king, God used one of the most beloved prophets in all the scriptures, the prophet named Samuel. If you remember Hannah, she had prayed for God to give her a child. And when she finally was given a child by God, she gave him right back to the temple. And he became the priest. That's King Samuel. A man who honored the Lord all the days of his life until he died. And there's not a lot of those in the Bible. And Samuel is the one that God used to anoint Saul as king of Israel. And God anointed Saul king of Israel. God, The Bible says God's anointing came down upon Saul and he was favored in the sight of God. And in his success, he did a lot of good things for Israel as their king in the early days. But sadly, he became more and more proud because of his accomplishments and he became more and more jealous of David. And there comes a time in his life when he doesn't obey the Lord. And that's where we get that verse that is so notorious that you probably remember. And it says, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. If you remember what happened in that story, God had told King Saul to go out and kill the Agites, Ag king of the Agites, and he was supposed to kill them all and all their animals, and Saul kept the king alive, and he kept these fat sheep alive. 
Shane, these were the fattest sheep he had ever seen. And it says that he kept them alive for that reason. It was like a glory to have them. And when Samuel came to him to say, why didn't you do what God said to you to kill all the sheep? Saul said, well, we were going to sacrifice these, which was probably not the case. They were probably not going to sacrifice them. So that's where the statement comes in the Bible, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. So this is the heritage of Mordecai. He had a royal heritage. Oh, I don't want you to think little of him. Being a Benjamite is a royal heritage. The second thing we see about Mordecai, he was held captive living somewhere he didn't plan on living. You see this in chapter 2, verse 6. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jokonai, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So when Mordecai was born, he was born into captivity. And he wasn't living in Jerusalem. He was living in Babylonia in a place where he didn't want to live. And he didn't plan on living. Maybe some of you guys here today, you're living in circumstances that you didn't plan on living in. When you were a young man, you set out to be married one day. Maybe your marriage doesn't add up to what you dreamed of. When you set out to have children one day, maybe your children doesn't add up to what you dreamed of. That's where Mordecai was. He was somebody who was held captive. He was in a position, living in a place where he didn't necessarily want to be. He didn't necessarily desire to be. Men need to know. Almost every man in this room has some, some portion of truth of that statement in their life. Amen? Almost every man... Don't look at yourself and think, well, all these other men, everything's going perfect for them. Everything's just the way they want it, just the way they desire it. That's not the case. There's always something in your life that you did not desire that you probably would not prefer that has occurred in your life. He was held captive. The next thing we see about Mordecai is that he was filled with pure and undefiled worship. I'm going to explain that further as we get into it. But The first thing I want to show you about that is... In Esther chapter 2 verse 7 that Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So he it says in, in there that he raised her and that he also took her in as his own daughter. It means that he had adopted her. God, by his providence, allowed Esther's parents to die. And so then she has no parents. She's an orphan. And Mordecai, being a godly man, took her into his home and raised her as his own daughter. In James chapter 1, verse 27, I want you to be able to see it. It says, pure and undefiled religion before the Lord, before God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble." and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Well, I had to look up that word religion because religion in our church is a bad word, right? So i, I got to explain this to you. Uh, it's not literally the word religion. It's literally the word worship. That's why the point here is pure and undefiled worship. Pure and undefiled worship of God the Father is to visit orphans and widows. Why is that such a good kind of worship? Why is that an elevated form of worship? Because... 
Orphans and widows are helpless people. Orphans and widows are people who, uh, especially in that day, but even still today, they could not provide for themselves. A woman in those days, if her husband passed away, she would not have any funds to be able to provide for herself or even care for herself. Sometimes wouldn't even have a place to live. So somebody who was of pure and undefiled worship of God would take them in and begin to care for them, begin to be kind to them. And that's still the case today. Most widows, we don't know a lot of orphans, unless you go to an orphanage, but most widows are needy even in today's society. I hope you're aware of that. Let me read to you what the Bible says about it in James. After it says that statement about undefiled worship, here's the next verses after that. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit in this good place, but to the poor man you say, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil faults? Listen, my brothers. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the name of God by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you will love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whosoever shall keep the law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. I read that here because I'm talking about pure and undefiled worship. And what we're doing here on Sundays is having worship service publicly. We're worshiping publicly here. And if there are poor people who come in here and you don't welcome them as, as much as somebody who has a, a good job or somebody who has fine clothes on, then we're being partial in our worship. And that's not good worship. Our church should not be set up in such a way that it looks like the kind of place where a poor person that stood outside our door and looked in here wouldn't want to come in here. They, they should want to come in here and they should be treated just as highly as anyone else because they are somebody who Jesus died for. And to become less in that or weak in that as a body, as a congregation, would harm our worship together. And it would not have the anointing of God on it. And it would not invite the presence of God into this place. Amen. I hope God spare us. And even God teach us. Teach us how to be that kind of church. I don't have all the answers. I preach them right here. But I know that it starts in our hearts. And how we view people in need. If somebody is needy in, in everyday life, do you help them or not? I'm not talking about the guy on the... Every red light in Raleigh that's begging for money, I'm not sure whether some of those are homeless or not. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your neighbor or somebody you come in contact with in your face as you walk through the week and they have a need. Do you help them or do you avoid them? If you're an undefiled worship of God, men would help them. And sometimes that's hard to do. That's the kind of man I want to be. I want to be the kind of man who does right when it's time to do what's right. And that is 
what worshiping God is about. And, and that comes from worshiping God. It's from pure worship that a man will live in that kind of way. And so I believe that Mordecai was a, a godly man who walked with the Lord or he would not have adopted Esther and treated her as his own daughter. That's the kind of father we want to be. The next thing we see about Mordecai is he had children who found favor with others. If you're going to be a good father, one of the things that will happen is you will have children who other people will find favor with. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Now the young woman pleased, uh, it's talking about Haggai, pleased Haggai, and she obtained his favor. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing according to the advisement of the eunuch. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. And then chapter 2, verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight. A godly man who's been a good father, his children will find favor with others. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 11, even a child is known by his ways, whether he does what is pure and right. In other words, just in our church, if I named for you some children, you would thought, you'd have thoughts immediately. You might have the thoughts, oh, that's such a sweet little girl, or that's just such a precious little boy. Or you might have thoughts, oh, he's wild. <laughs> and and uh, they would tear my house up if they came to my house. I mean, you have thoughts immediately. Everybody immediately thinks something about children. They're known by their ways. If you're a good dad, a godly father, your children will be favored by other people. Your children will be somebody that adults would enjoy talking to. Your children will be somebody that grown women, as a little girl... Grown women would enjoy speaking with that young lady. Grown men would enjoy speaking with that young man. Why? Because you've trained them right. You've taught them the ways of God. And they'll find favor with other people. Two subpoints under that. Children who find favors with others. First of all, you will raise children who are pure. I made this point already, but I think it's worth making again. Esther could not have been used by God in the book of Esther if she hadn't have kept herself pure. Young men and young women know the priority, the importance of keeping yourself pure. If Esther had not been a virgin, she could not have been taken into custody in chapter 2 to become the queen and to become used of God to save the Jewish people if she had not been pure. If she had not been pure, she would never have become queen. And if she had not been pure, there wouldn't be a book in the Bible named Esther. And if she had not been pure, the Jews would not have been saved during this time through her life. There is value, young ladies, in staying pure. There is value, young men, in staying pure, staying innocent, keeping your eyes from certain things, keeping your heart from certain things. God honors that. Don't let the world devalue that because everybody else is doing something different. Extremely valuable. You had children who were pure. You also had, you'll have children who obey. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal them. Look, at this point in her life, she's, a, she's like a grown woman. 
And Mordecai says, here's one thing I don't want you to do. I don't want you to re reveal your heritage. And the Bible says she didn't do it. And she's grown. And she's still listening to her father. She's still doing what he asked. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. Look at the end of it. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. What does that verse say? It says that she obeyed him when she was young, and now she obeys him when she was old. She had obeyed him throughout her life. Mordecai had been the kind of father who had encouraged her obedience. Obedient children in today's society will stand out like never before. You sit in a restaurant and watch obedient children. People will be amazed. If you're a parent here of obedient children and you go sit in a restaurant, you're probably getting compliments about it. You're probably having people come up to you during your meal and say, I've never seen a young boy sit so calmly in, in a restaurant. Because it's, it is no, no, notable today if you have obedient children. Obedient children will bring peace in your home. Obedient children will bring joy to your life. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the training and in the admonition of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 24, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise child will find delight in him. I'm going to go into application. Two points. Number one, after these things. We see this in chapter 2, verse 1. It makes this statement about the king. It says, after these things. Aren't you glad in your relationship with God there's a statement after these things? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, And you, God, made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you walked, once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just like the others. The Bible don't say this. I'm putting this in there. It sort of says it, but it doesn't say it. After these things, let me keep reading Ephesians chapter 2. After these things, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's two things he says in there after these things. You once walked according to the course of the world, disobedient, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind and the lust of the flesh, and you are under the anger of God. But God, it says, who is rich in mercy, when it declares God rich in something, it means he is never ending with it. He has an abundance of it. And it starts in those verses by saying that God is rich in mercy. He gives you mercy 
And then by and by, you go to need it again. Some people's by and by is a little while. Some people's by and by is not very long at all. You're going to meet mercy again. And God's rich in it. He doesn't get exhausted in mercy. That's what that means. He has an abundance of it. He can keep on giving you mercy because that's the kind of God He is. I've made this point many times before. I won't belabor it today, but the mercy seat where the throne, the throne of Jesus, the throne, the chair He sits in, He has named it mercy because He's a merciful God. He sits in His chair and His chair has on it the name mercy because He's a merciful God. He's rich in mercy. And it says in the end of these verses, he's exceedingly rich in grace and kindness towards you in Jesus Christ. He's rich in mercy, and then he's even exceedingly much more rich in grace and kindness towards you through Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad with God? There's an after these things. We talk first of all here about a bad, mad marriage from King Azarias. Men who would find a divorce and find a way out of their marriage. Do you know that men who are Christian men who find these divorces find a lot of sorrow with them? Do you know that? I have known two men who, once divorced, left their faith. They, in other words, walked away from God for good. I have my theory about that. My, my initial theory about that is that they were so consumed with guilt, so consumed with failure. In the church, a divorce is a very bad thing. And then a man who had done such a thing would be so consumed with failure and guilt that he couldn't stand it anymore. And the only way to deal with it was not to find forgiveness, but to find a way out and to run from the God who they once loved so dearly. It's for that reason that I must preach against divorce in this church. I must preach against it so hard that, that you as a, as a man in your own home would never threaten divorce. Don't ever bring that word up. It's a bad word. Don't ever threaten you might get divorced or you're thinking about divorce. I must preach in such a way here from this pulpit that you would not consider divorce that you would not even consider that an option no matter how bad things have gotten no matter how tough things are going you would not consider divorce as an option you would know that if you're feeling this way and you're so tired in that way and you're so done in that way you need some Jesus up in your house and up in your heart and you would know that Jesus can make a difference I must preach that way here but I must also preach here the grace of Jesus. So much so that if somebody comes through those doors who has experienced a divorce, they can find God here again. I must preach Jesus so great in his grace that that one who has experienced divorce and feels so guilty and so separated from God would find hope once again. Would believe once again that God has not left you that God has not given up on you. That God has a purpose for you. And that God will carry you. And God will carry your children through by the grace of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? With God, there's an 
after these things. Because if you've gone through the divorce, then you can drive up at the front of your house. But after these things, Jesus did something new in my life. We've also talked in this message about parenthood. About being a good father. Or being a good mother. I have also known some moms that want to give up on God. Because they tried from the time their child was born giving their child over to the Lord, teaching their child the ways of God, teaching their child the things of God, teaching their child the word of God. But now that their children are adults, some of those children don't walk with God anymore. Some of those children don't go to church anymore. Some of those children don't love God anymore. And I've known some, no more moms here than I have dads, guys. It's a testimony to the sweetness of our moms, but maybe the some guys need to wake up, but I've known some moms here whose, whose hearts are broken. There's a sadness in a mom's heart or a dad's heart that takes away all the joys when your child that you've taught to love God, your God, gets grown and they don't love Him. They don't love that God. And so I need to preach here in such a way that parents will parents will strive to be everything God called you to be. That you'll read the Bible to your children. I, I know this as a pastor. Now, I've been doing this for a little while, guys. If we could just get the men of this church to read the Bible to their, to their families, it would make a difference like you've never seen before. If you would just every night gather around your children's bed or around the kitchen table and just read the Bible. You don't even have to explain it. Just read the Bible every night to your children. What a difference it would make. <coughs> if we could have services here conducted in such a way that men and, and women, that especially men, would discipline their children. Remember the word discipline comes from the word. It has two meanings. It means to disciple and to discipline. It's the same word. To disciple, to teach them the ways of God, to discipline means to, to spank, I believe the Bible says. To correct them out of love. We must preach so strongly that men here today would step up to their task, their call of God task of disciplining their children, being present in their homes, being present with their families. Loving their children, the Bible says, loving them enough to discipline them. But we must also preach here in such a way that if you have that child who's not honoring God and not living for the Lord, you would know that there is an exceeding riches of God's grace and you would hold on to God and hold on to hope. That God in His miraculous ways through the power of Jesus can bring any person to faith in Jesus Christ. And when you think about your children who've turned their back on God or maybe moved far away from God, aren't you glad there's an after these things? After these things, when Jesus shows up, there's an exceeding grace that changes lives. 
opportune application. This comes from chapter 2, verse 5. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew, talking about Mordecai, a certain man. A certain man. This is where Mordecai is displayed in Scripture as becoming everything God called him to be. He became a certain man. He became the man God wanted Mordecai to be, a certain man. It doesn't say he was a king. doesn't say he was a ruler. doesn't say he had wealth. It just says he was a certain man. And I believe, and I've always believed this since I got saved, every man who's really saved wants to be everything God wants you to be. Every man who has a genuine salvation with God Almighty wants to be what God wants him to be, whatever that looks like. And that's what Mordecai did. He became a certain man. A certain man has things he's not going to do. And then you know these things. And I, I'll just throw out a couple to give you some ideas, but the Spirit of God has put this on your heart years ago, probably. Some men don't need to drink because you'll mess things up. Some men don't need to do certain things in business. I'm not going to cheat in business. I'm not going to steal in business. I'm not going to cheat on my wife, maybe. I'm not going to threaten my wife. Say certain things, demeaning things to her. Whatever the Spirit of God has put in your heart, that's the kind of man you're going to be. You say, how do I become a certain man? You let the convictions the Spirit of God puts on you bind you in, and you live by those every single day. The reputation of a man is not made in a week. It's not made in a month. It's not even made in years. It's made in a lifetime. And because it's, it, it must be made in a lifetime because you can break it in a moment. You can break it in a moment and ruin everything you've lived for your whole life. You know that, guys? In one day, in one night, you can destroy everything you have tried to be, being God's certain man for, for a long time. Maybe you've done it for 20 years or 30 years. In one moment, you can ruin it all. And at your funeral, they won't remember the 20 years you did whatever. They'll remember that one week or one day you did the bad thing. That's what you'll be known by. I looked up the life of King Saul today because I remembered that Saul was a great man. A, a man who had God's anointing on him. And I looked in the history books to see if there was a mention of Saul in the history books outside the Bible. Do you know that Saul is not mentioned outside the Word of God? Because he dishonored God. He's remembered as a bad king because he dishonored God. Even though there were some good things early on, what he did in the latter part of his life ruined his name, ruined his testimony. It starts with certain things I'm not going to do. And then it comes to certain things I'm going to do. A good father will put his children first. A good husband will put his wife first. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invest in what is important in my life, what God has given me. I want you to look back at chapter 2, verse 11 with me. This certain man, Mordecai, and every day Mordecai, circle the word paste. Every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. 
every day he went to where she was, walked back and forth in front of that women's quarters to find out what was happening to her, her welfare, how she doing. And it says, and what was happening to her. He was present in her life every day. I don't know what Mordecai did with his day, but the Bible brings up this important part. Every part of his day, he was determined to have some time with Esther, spend some, some amount of time with her every day, and talk to her and find out what's going on with her and what's going on in her life. Man, if we're going to be good husbands and good fathers, we're going to do that with our wives and we're going to do that with our children. You're going to spend a certain amount of time with them every single day. You say, well, that's hard. Yes. Yes, it is. But it's the most important thing you can do in your day besides be with God. And that means you set boundaries for yourself. If I'm going to be a certain kind of man, there's certain things I'm going to do with my family. When my wife calls, I answer the phone. If I'm with a very important person and my wife calls, I answer the phone. Why? She's more important. If I'm with a very important person and my child calls, I answer the phone. Why? They're more important. These are certain things you're going to do. Men, you must have a certain time you're going to come home. If you're going to spend a certain amount of time with your child or your wife every day, you have to make rules for yourself that this is when I'm going to come home. I'm coming home from work. Why? Because my children's time is as important as what I've done on the workplace, in the workplace today. My wife's time is just as important as what I've done in the workforce today. My children and my wife matter. I'm going to set aside a time every day to find out how they're doing and what's happening in their life. I'm going to be a certain kind of man. I believe when I preach a message like this, men, I hope it does. If you're really saved, I believe it does. I don't think it's even based on my preaching ability. I think it's based on you being saved or not. So that believes me. <laughs> if you're really saved, I believe men are stirred up right now. You're, you're sitting there and you're saying, yes, I want to be God's man. I want to live for you, Lord. I want, to, I want to love my wife like Jesus loved the church. I want to love my children like, like God would have me do so. I want to be God's man. Usually when we end the service, I end in an invitation where I, I don't ask you to come forward because I want every person here to participate in that invitation. I want every person here to pray the prayer I'm inviting you to pray. I wanted to lead you in this prayer today, but I don't have the words to say it because I might, I might just get all broken up about it. But there's a song that says it. And so I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes. And we're going to pray, we're going to pray this song. You may not have ever heard it before, but the song is going to play. And men, I want you to pray in agreement with this song as it plays, if you would. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And listen to this song. You just pray to the Lord these words. Please. If I speak your words like angels, I'll climb the highest peak. Fight for fame, build my name so the world remembers me. It'll feel like stars in the morning, a whisper in a crowd. It will all dissolve to nothing 